Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we have Dr. Terry Lewis. Dr. Lewis is a clinical educator with more than 30 years of experience in the development and administration of community, rehabilitation, and counseling programs. She has executive experience in government operations, legal and regulatory processes, executive coaching, program design, outcome measurement, and quality practices in healthcare and public programs. And if that's not enough, Dr. Lewis is now spearheading arguably the largest and most comprehensive behavioral survey analyzing the living conditions and healthcare experiences of chronic pain patients. And with that, we'd like to welcome Dr. Lewis. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for asking me to join you. Appreciate that. So uh, about this survey, which you call in of our own words, you reach out directly to patients to garner their experience from a day-to-day standpoint and also from a healthcare standpoint regarding their pain. Why did you administer the survey in this way? Um, Nobody's talking to patients. Everybody's talking around patients. Everybody's uh, measuring uh, the conversation around indicators that really have very little to do with the day-to-day patient experience or clinical decisions made around treatment planning and supporting people where they are. So the identity of of patients is very clouded by uh, the measures that are currently in place. And I think that um, this contributes to a lack of understanding because we don't have a handle on the context in which um, all of the factors that we're concerned about are being um, measured. So I just decided to take it to patients who are not at the table anywhere in this conversation. And, and, and we have to give them a seat. Um, we have to ask them how they're affected and, and I think it's completely malpractice to do otherwise. So that was the basis of the survey. Certainly. And while I'd love to get into a little bit more on the factors you studied, for the audience, can you help them understand indicators and metrics that you're alluding to and the limitations thereof? Okay. Our um, a current climate of uh, prohibition and enforcement against physicians and patients and pharmacies is occurring primarily in the context of Medicare and Medicaid billing data, which uh, are framed in algorithms that are developed by, uh, that are developed by um, big data organizations um, like General Dynamics and QLearnt and APRIS. And um, these, these indicators um, are completely de-identified from patients and people who interact with the system. Also, these indicators have no contextual basis mm-hmm. or to interpret uh, meaning. The other problem we have with these indicators is that the design of data 
is uh, fairly indefensible in terms of how these um, the information is collected, the variability in the collection of this information, the historical age of this information, and um, the relationship of this information to treatment decisions. Certainly. So, so that's, a, that's a really big issue. And, and the databases that we're com primarily concerned about are state level databases across state systems and uh, not just healthcare data, not just electronic records for healthcare, but also we're looking at mental health interactions, um, uh, interactions with departments of human services around foster care, uh, criminal records, whether you've gotten a driver's license ticket you know, just all kinds of data there that are being used to frame what they're calling community factors. And um, the, other, the other part of this, the other part of this is insurance, billing data. Um, billing data is not the same as treatment data. It doesn't have the same meaning in understanding how care is delivered or treatment decisions are, are provided. And um, that is, that, that billing data is derived primarily from information collected by Medicare, Medicaid contracted insurance plans that is shifted up to CMS and then is sent over to uh, uh, members of the healthcare fraud prevention program contracting team. And um, with the design of that data, uh, it is, it's reliant on, um, it's reliant on payer sources, but it's, it's not inclusive of physicians and it's not inclusive of patients to help with the design or test of that data in order to, to make the context consistent in meaning or um, in our understandings, framing our understandings. And certainly, I think you mentioned quite a few important limitations in the manner in which data is currently aggregated. And that highlights the value of the survey that you're conducting. And I want to go over a few uh, which you describe as issues that are covered in the 30 questions of the survey. This would include okay. demographics, syndromes, disorders, signs and symptoms, pharmacy and polypharmacy limitations, sequelae accrued to users of health services, identification of insurmountable barriers. These issues that you describe really provide a contextual understanding of the true living conditions and healthcare experiences of the people who are, have chronic pain. In the preliminary data that you've aggregated so far, what are some of the most salient points that you've noticed in the responses? Ooh, you know, I'm really excited by um, what is sifting, the pearls that are sifting out of this data. When I, put this survey together, I included objective and open-ended responses. My goal 
was to find out how people are, are affected by the policy changes that have been imposed on their interactions with the system around care and pharmaceuticals that involve opioids of one type or another. And um, my background is, is multi-handicaps and, and chronic disease and rare disease. That's what I have specialized in over my work life. So um, I understand that um, the demographics in which a person receives their treatment planning is variable from state to state. It is variable from insurance contracting plan to insurance contracting plan. And it's variable in terms of the continuity or continuum of one's lifetime and how care changes across the lifespan because of rules, policies, regulations, changes from childhood to adulthood to elder care and more. So the demographics um, are something that we don't talk about is an influence in um, how healthcare, uh, how we interpret healthcare data, but they're really important. And they're more important than ever because of this variability in processes and services and um, the contextual factors. If you are living in the state of Washington versus the state of Nebraska or the state of, of, of Arizona or, or a, an urban environment in New York City, your interactions and transactions with healthcare are entirely different. And capturing those differences in terms of the demographics is pretty important, I think in terms of understanding the context. So, so let's, uh, let's get into the demographics a, a little bit more granularly. On table 24, you talk about the respondents and you break it down even by zip code, by states, right. by territories represented, all to identify these inherent variabilities. For those who are not as well-versed in the field of chronic pain and the impact of variability, can you help us understand why variability is so detrimental to overall health? Well, policy is a one-size-fits-all phenomenon. And uh, while we talk a lot about pain, and I put that in, in brackets, pain is a very unique and very different experience for individuals depending on um, the combination of disorders that they, or injuries that they have to manage and dependent on how they transact with their healthcare system locally in order to receive supports for that. I, I'm sitting today in the state of Montana and, and where we've just moved my son um, and if I look at his insurance plan, there is not a, a board certified pain management specialist within 100 miles of the zip code 59632. Wow. If I go to, uh, and that's, that's, that's pretty concerning. 
So, so many people, and I'm using Montana as an example, many people in Montana find themselves having to go out of state for healthcare related to rare disease, chronic disease, and more because the specialty services have dried up in the state around regulation of pain. So that's concerning. Um, if you have to go to Salt Lake City or you have to go to Washington State um, to get your routine care, uh, there are many barriers imposed in that process. So intuitively, it makes sense that that would be concerning because the longer you have to drive, the more difficult it is on you financially, the greater pain burden you'd have to experience. But what right. you do that's very unique in the survey is that you contextualize these issues, distance to pharmacist, distance to physician, relative to the patient's experience or the caretaker's experience. Uh, there's, right. two ex there's two questions I wanna kind of focus on. One is question six, where you talk about a patient's experience with being discharged by a physician or from a clinical practice and how that impacts the patient's care subsequently. And then you go on to talk about the interactions with the pharmacies as a result of that. Why did you phrase these questions in a way that's so personal to a patient's journey? Because pain is personal. Healthcare is personal. Uh, every patient is an N of one. Yeah. Um, you know, and while we can devise all of the cookie cutter policies we want, uh, this personal experience with healthcare is measured by um, red flags that are built into the measures that are designed to promote barriers to care. They're not designed to help people get care. They're designed to, to um, remove decisions about who gets care. And that's a, a real conflict in, um, in healthcare today that is not accounted for but really central to these, these payment measures from Medicare, the algorithms that are used to flag both pharmacies, uh, physicians, and patients. Um, you know, we've lost contact with our patients. Uh, a far, it used to be that a pharmacist knew everybody on their caseload. These small community pharmacists who we relied on, they knew the family, they knew the history, they, they were part of that healthcare team. And we have disrupted that process now that we are slaving to measures that are disconnected from the patient's health needs and the patient's experience. Yeah, that's a very important point to, for people to realize that the counterintuitive effects of the recent CDC guidelines and the DEA policies have adversely affected healthcare away from the patient-physician encounter and towards the data. Uh, Dr. Right. Lewis, you are uniquely qualified to understand the impact at a personal level and at a broad data level because you have been instrumental in elucidating a lot of the data that's mined by these companies like APRIS, NARC score, 
what do you see in the data through the survey responses? Are the survey responses proving that the data is biased or is it more complicated than that? Well, I, I think there's no doubt that there's bias in uh, the design of how we collect data and, and it's driven by assumptions that are drug war policy that have very little to do with healthcare delivery. Um, and, and one of the things that I, I did and wanted to do with this is to look under the blankets. Um, it's, it's not enough to say that um, drugs are bad. It's not enough to say that people are getting denied care. It's, it's critical for us to understand and measure the impact of the assumptions that frame policy. Um, and it's unfortunate that the federal government, um, an, e even while implementing GIPRA, which is the Government Improvement Results Act, um, which required performance evaluation, uh, the Congress has removed many of the structures and tools that are available to them to measure the impact of the policies that they devise. So that has been shifted to um, local communities, organizations, agencies, and more, and, and, and private contractors, but, but they're not singing off the same song sheet. They don't really, the measures that they've been designed to measure are the reduction of prescribing and the reduction of use that is being framed as an overdose crisis. Well, we know now, uh, we have good evidence now that um, this overdose crisis is much more complex than uh, many of us who are involved in policy design. Um, can take the time to understand, and um, and it's and these assumptions um, are designed to make complex ideas very simple. Uh, and so now we're measuring, you know, drug units deployed, um, the number of days that people are uh, allowed to receive a prescription and so forth under the theory that this will make things better. Well, what we know is that um, it's actually making things worse because our assumptions have not been properly tested or measured. And um, we don't have a process of iterating and using continuous improvement practices to understand what we're seeing in the data phenomenon. And that to me is a real problem because we should be using this data to inform the delivery of care, not to remove opportunity for people to receive care. Um, and, and so that, that's pretty alarming to me. No, I, I would agree. So do you feel that studies like what you're conducting, your survey is the solution to iterate the quality of the data that's being measured at a broad level? Or do you feel that a solution 
does away with broad data collection altogether? Well, data collection is necessary. How we ask questions is really important for us to understand. Um, if we're slaving to political ideas, uh, we have a real problem in, um, in the delivery of care. The politicization of the drug wars um, makes for compelling uh, talking points on the campaign trail, but it's actually destructive of healthcare delivery at the local level. Example of that is the state that I've lived in for the last 35 years is Tennessee, where um, we've lost more than 200 um, clinics that served people with chronic illness and helped them to do medication management just due to regulatory changes and ramp ups. Um, Tennessee is in the middle of the Appalachian Drug Task Force region and, and has been a proving ground for experimenting with um, innovations in incarceration and targeting healthcare providers. Um, and, and while by some measures, some believe that the reduction of you know, dispensing clinics is a good thing. In fact, what's happened is we've put more than 500,000 people on the streets without supportive healthcare in one state alone. Additionally, 13 rural hospitals have been killed in the last three years alone. So people have to travel literally two and 300 miles in a single state from their point, of, their point of residence to a clinic that can support them for fundamental care. The ripple effect of this is that the more we deny fundamental care, the more we exacerbate conditions that lead to and or are supported by healthcare processes that are pretty basic. I would agree. And I think at a broad policy level, that is an understanding we are now starting to acknowledge and accept as true. Uh, Dr. Lewis, I think it would be very instructive for the listening audience if you expand on this example in more granular terms. And you mentioned twice about the distance patients now have to travel. What's very interesting in some of the data that you've collected is distance to a primary care physician is one of the red flags that the data like APRIS and NARCScore look out for as a high risk prescriber. So do you, see, do you see a self-fulfilling bias in the data? Absolutely. The way the, way the data in the algorithms is built it relies on FIPS codes. And these codes are federal, they're, they're, they're related to um, zip codes and um, other geographic geocaching kinds of, of um, markers. 
And uh, they are used to compute uh, the cost of travel in federal programs. And I, I think I provided you with a list of those. Um, there are also some of these zip codes are metropolitan. Some of these are um, ur urban locators. And then the vast majority of them are rural indicators. So if the patient has to travel from one code to another code to get their care, and then they have to travel to another location to fill their prescription, for example, in Tennessee, um, which is um, something I'm intimately familiar with. I live in, my, my zip code is 5963, uh, not 5963, it's 38582, which is the exit on Interstate 40 in a little place called Silver Point. And it's a rural area in the middle of the Upper Cumberland region. The distance that we have to travel into the next community over is Cookville, Tennessee. It's about 12 miles, okay? Just, just to run into town. But our healthcare, because of the nature of the damage that has occurred to our 14 county region, which is about 5,000 square miles, 14 counties, three of the poorest counties in the state are located in this region. They're remote, mountainous, they're not connected by interstate highways, and um, this region alone has lost three major rural hospitals. So all of the healthcare has shifted to Nashville, Chattanooga or Knoxville. Each of those points are about a hundred miles distant for people who live in those areas. Also, the pharmacy system has crashed because it has been targeted by DEA. Now this is in, within this region, okay? So we're left with Walgreens and CVS but if you don't have Medicaid, um, then you don't have access to these pharmacies and because you have to pay cash, okay? So that means that you've got to find another system to support your both your primary care, your specialty care, and your... Um, other kinds of supports, pain care, whatever it is, in a region that is, is primarily now supporting people who are 55 and above. So, um, because young people left the region and work out of the region because of economic patterns that have developed um, over the years. So, you know, those who can leave, those who, are, are significantly elderly and disabled members of the population. So they are the most likely to need um, opioids and other combinations of medicines for uh, supporting their independent living within the region in which they have to function. So that's, that's quite an issue. If I have one person alone and I have a large pain group 
that I support through Facebook, I have one person alone for whom I mapped her on um, Google Maps, her distance to travel to a single appointment in Nashville is 130 miles. She's on the Kentucky border just because she has to go back roads to get to the interstate. Oh, wow. Um, so that's one way. So one appointment is 260 miles for her. The pharmacy in her community was uh, targeted by DEA because of filling too many opioid prescriptions, even though the context of this pharmacy was it was supporting a community that is primarily elderly, okay? People with chronic disease and illness predominate in this population. And there is now no longer a hospital system to support them because Medicare expansion did not increase. And so all the services shifted to Nashville or Knoxville or up into the Kentucky region. Now, none of these algorithms account for any of this, except to measure the distance in miles and to red flag it if it exceeds more than 20 miles or 120 miles, depending on whether it is urban or rural. Well, just right off the bat, these folks are in trouble. Yeah, so it definitely becomes self-fulfilling in that regard. But what's unique about your survey is that you contextualize the experiences. You obtain that information lost in the broad data sets. Mm -hmm. Do policymakers or local community leaders uh, gravitate towards your work? Are they looking to incorporate it into how opioid policies are administered at a local, state, or federal level? Well, I haven't really um, put it out there yet for policymakers, except that I have shared it with CDC. And it is becoming picked up by others who are researching these issues. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really conservative about what I'm doing. I don't want to publish widely until I fully understand what I've got to work with with this information. Certainly. And, and the other part of this is, is it's kind of longitudinal. I've been collecting this information since 2016. So I can actually benchmark the, the changes that are imposed on the lives of individuals depending on when they complete this survey and how they're affected. That's something that is not being done elsewhere but I think it's really important for us to understand the trends in impact over time. Um, so I'm, I'm still kind of looking at that, but I have released this information to other researchers because I think, um, and, I, and, I, and I collaborate closely with others. Um, I don't see this as something that I own, I think this is something that we all understand, need to understand. So I want to share it with others who are concerned about asking the right questions. No, I, I, we, we certainly appreciate that level of uh, scientific professionalism. It is much needed in an otherwise heavily politicized 
uh, pain discussion. What's very fascinating is that you began in 2016, as you had just mentioned, and now going through a pandemic, now coming out the other end of it, you must have seen some incredible trends in responses over time. Are there any trends that stick out in your mind that are particularly pronounced? I think the, the physician abandonment is severe. Wow. And, uh, and uh, there are a number of reasons for that that, that we, can, we can examine just in the general atmosphere by pulling other databases uh, into the work. I've been, this, this survey has brought me into close contact with, with two issues. One, how we construct the data around this and what data is being pulled and how that data is being pulled into algorithms that are being used to measure what we what, what policy believes to be success in, in promulgating the conversation around uh, whether or not we're doing the right thing in terms of design of policy and programs. I, I think this data aligns really well with other, the concern of other researchers about the very poor and biased construction of the CDC guidelines and the, the processes that um, government is relying on to inform guideline development. I think, I think when we leave patients out of the process, we, are, we, we, we start slaving to a set of criteria that is not about patients anymore. It's about factors that are assumption driven, but not reliable and not valid and not tested. And, um, and I think we're, we're moving away from helping and we're moving rapidly toward harming people. Uh, I would agree. Uh, really quickly, we're not, distinguishing, we're not distinguishing between these populations either in terms of throwing terms around like, you know, the increased use of addiction and substance use disorder and, you know, the shift toward other medications. Clearly, this is an agenda that's driven by something other than the delivery of health care. Yeah, uh, Dr. Lewis, uh, two things. Um, I, I want to um, follow up on that, which you had mentioned kind of then centers behind those developing the guidelines. But uh, thinking more idealistically and also kind of more from a, a first principle standpoint, do you envision a way where your data can integrate with existing broad population data sets? And how would that work together? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, what I've done is I've spent a lot of time um, transforming this data. What I, I developed objective questions, and I also developed contextual questions. So with those contextual questions, um, it's generated a lot. I've, I've done a lot of um, extractions. And so you can see in the tables that I've pulled together that um, we can identify exactly what body systems are being affected by people who are reporting their disease diagnosis. 
Uh, we can look at the multiplicity of problems that they are uh, um, having to deal with. So we can compare that data to the other data sets generated by uh, Medicare uh, for disability utilization review, for instance. And that's pretty important because most of the data that is generated by Medicare is hospital-driven data. And that's the benchmark for evaluating uh, and framing many of these conversations. Um, if you look in the CMS warehouse of data indicators, that's primarily hospital-driven data. But the people whose lives are affected are living in the community and they're receiving their care through primary care clinics or urgent care clinics. And that, that, that data is different. That billing data looks different. And I think we should be caring, comparing apples to apples and not apples to oranges. We should not be comparing primary care billing data to hospital billing data as the baseline or the, or the benchmark. So and do you see a ratio where potentially you can have these broad objective data sets cross-referenced with some of the more subjective data that you're populating through the survey? I'm, I'm, I'm working on that. And that's one thing that's, that's taking so much time because I'm really the only one working on this. But um, I am cross-referencing and I do, I have been working on setting up um, associations and correlations and, and measures. Um, I, I want to look at patterns that are emerging from this data so that we can better understand the relationships within the internal questions. Right. You know, I, I think certainly the work you're doing is extremely important. And when it is already for public consumption, uh, I feel that a lot of people would benefit from learning from the work that you're doing. Uh, I want to kind of turn back to something you had mentioned earlier about some of the uh, less than a fully transparent incentives of individuals who are working on the CDC guidelines. Can you talk a little bit about what you've experienced and also kind of what your data analysis has shown you with regards to the incentives of some of these individuals? Well, this is getting a lot of attention at the moment in some quarters uh, among people like me, but also among people who are concerned about the integrity of the data that informs public policy. So I'm not alone in this. Uh, the, if you look at the uh, processes that, go, and I'm a, I'm a trained, federal contractor. I was a federal contractor for 20 years. So I, I know what I expect to see uh, in process, what, I, what should be accounted for in process. I'm very concerned that um, as government has reduced its workforce for, for reasons that we can account for separately, the, the quality of um, data design has been farmed out 
to private contractors and a variety of institutional partners. Those partners right now are, uh, one of the biggest partners is um, Oregon State Health University and Roger Chow's shop in, um, in, with regard to opioid uh, data and policy. Um, there are 12 organizations, academic organizations that are under contract to the federal government to help with understanding um, data analysis that is available. And, and some of those organizations specialize in this, that, or the other thing. Unfortunately, what's not happening is that there are other parties to this conversation that need to be at the table to look at the work that is being produced by these organizations and that step seems to be missed. So what's happening is you've got an, an extraordinary amount of voice given to parties to this conversation who are, who are subcontractors or who are, who are research partners who don't have the same level of interest in the patient outcomes as they do in their institutional outcomes and their research outcomes. And, and I think that what's happening here is, what raises red flags for me, is that we see the same weak processes being sold into AHRQ and CDC over and over again that are dressed up in and tied with a ribbon of systematic reviews that really lack um, the level of specificity that we would ordinarily look for in, in ongoing research on this topic. And, and I'm not convinced that um, the conflicts of interest are appropriately addressed in this process between ongoing relationships between federal agencies and these contractors. Yeah, it, it, it is a shame how politicized this entire discussion has become. It is, it is, well, the evidence is becoming pretty clear that, um, there are some steps missing in procurement integrity that would assist with addressing these issues. And um, you know, we we I, I was I was a party as a federal contractor to the redesign of government. So I was working at, a, at an early stage when government went to private contractors and away from doing all this work themselves. So I understand that process. I also understand that federal agencies become very comfortable and complacent with their partners, okay? In the private sector. 
So I believe that there's a lot of that going on. And rather than uh, employing the quality practices that require periodic scrutiny and, and um, review of these relationships, um, I, I, I'm very concerned that uh, that's not happening. Procurement of, of expertise, um, if you look at the patterns of, of people who are showing up in this work as experts, you know, there's, there's very few experts in pain anywhere in the pain conversation that are involved in, in informing the government about its policy. And that concerns me. And it should concern all of us. Yeah. And the level of review, independent and objective review and periodic testing of what is offered is just not there. And, um, you know, it, it, it's, like, it's like we're creating a very narrow funnel where we're, we're, we're listening to the voices in our head and, um, and we're not challenging the, uh, what we hear. And we're not comparing this to the reality of what's happening to people's lives because we're asking those questions. Yeah, and it's my hope that that data, like what you're producing, can help change that conversation to the point where now we have broader data inputs, more individuals putting information in. Uh, Before I I let you go, Dr. Lewis, can you, for the audience, perhaps leave on a positive note and describe some of the positive things that you're seeing with the CDC in terms of policy revisions or in terms of DEA, in terms of positive changes? Well, I, I think that um, on, a, on a positive note, Um, as DEA undertakes its latest set of processes to review um, and revise the guidelines that are on the table, uh, more uh, more people are raising questions about whether or not we're engaged in the right process. And that's what I hear as I listen to you know, these, these open meetings and so forth, there are more questions being raised. And, I, and I, I, I believe there is more awareness that, you know, there is, a, that we're not concordant between policy and process and what we see happening in the community. Um, that that the, the voices in the community are getting louder. Um, we're hopefully becoming a little more refined about our ability to uh, speak the same language. We have a long way to go with that. Um, we, we have very different functions between um, stakeholders to this process. I think there is more awareness that um, we must we must involve all of the parties who are affected. I am very concerned that DEA has a mission that still separates its policy from the health of the population. 
And that I think needs to change. But I think there are people who are in positions to challenge that idea and, and hopefully um, get that seat at the table uh, for evidence-based practice. Um, we have a long way to go. This is a very low period of, of, of um, healthcare, but there are other people looking at this, like Shannon Monat, and um, she, she's a researcher in a sociologist who is looking at the community economic factors involving the opioid crisis and how communities are are operating. And she's she's kind of she kind of inspires she's her work inspired me to really develop the information around the FIPS codes and the zip codes and the geography of these patients' lives um, because it is so critical to understanding the context. Um, and I, um, I, I think patients are becoming more informed. They are angry. They're justifiably angry. Um, they're concerned about having their physicians stripped away from them. Um, and, and I think all of that is positive. Uh, yeah. I, I don't I don't know where this is going to go. I, I don't have a crystal ball, but I think the more objective data we can get uh, from the patient and the physician experience, we need to do the same thing for physicians because they're not they're not abandoning patients because they're bad people. They're abandoning patients because the system, is creating a situation where it's impossible to provide care. Yeah. It's still practice. And um, so they have a lot to offer to this conversation too. And we need to find a way to hear that voice. Thank you so much, Dr. Lewis, for your time. Your work is incredibly important. And for those listening, we will put a link to this survey so that you can complete it if you so choose. The survey is still ongoing. So we would request anybody who has listened to the podcast and has an interest in pain, either directly or through a loved one, please participate in this survey and let your voice be heard. Thank you for the opportunity to participate in this discussion. Thank you, Dr. Lewis. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.